You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey folks, welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I am Steve Jenkins. You know what? Let's just dive right in. Today I'm talking to the amazing musician Charlie Hunter. Charlie plays guitar, he's ridiculous. He has a very unique concept where he's playing bass lines and guitar parts at the exact same time. It's the kind of thing you have to hear to believe and if you actually see him do it, it definitely feels like your senses are playing tricks on you. If you have the D'Angelo record, Voodoo, you've definitely heard Charlie play. If you go to the track called Spanish Joint, which I believe is track nine, if you listen to the first 20 seconds, however many musicians that you think are on that track, subtract one, because the guitar and bass, that's Charlie doing his thing in real time. Besides appearing on other people's records, such as Christian McBride, Snarky Puppy, Frank Ocean, John Mayer, and many others, Charlie has been a band leader in his own right for two decades or so. His very first record is called Charlie Hunter Trio. I think that came out in 93. That was produced by Les Claypool from Primus and also put on on Les's label, Prawn Song Records. And I think that was the first time I ever heard Charlie uh, play because I was a big Primus fan and so I felt like it might be cool just to hear anything that Les's name was attached to. And then from there, Charlie put records out on Blue Note. He was on Blue Note for a while and then rope dope Records. Also, Charlie's got a record with one of the greatest album titles ever, that being Everybody Has a Plan Until They Get Punched in the Mouth. <laughs> Anyhow, Charlie and I had a great chat. This was a few weeks ago, and here's how that went. How are you, man? Good, man. You know, same shit as everyone else. Just uh, kind of, you know doing this whole friggin' thing, but it's, uh, you know, honestly, I just needed, um, I definitely needed, uh, I've been on the road for 30 years, man. I mean, you know, I've, I've had times where it's been really bad and I haven't been able to make any money or there aren't gigs, you know, for, you know, whatever. But in generally, in general, I mean, it's been, I realized like 30 freaking years I've been out here and I drive, you know what I mean? So it, it, I probably never would have stopped if I wasn't forced to stop, you know? Um, so it, it, in many ways, other than worrying about, you know, I'm very good at living frugally as probably most musicians are, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, finally I can kind of take the car apart of my, playing and put it back together again you know what i mean so i've been just practicing a lot and just trying to trying to you know kind of decompose w- what i've done and try to make it a little more streamlined and more grooving and less f- less little frilly things you know <laughs> wow man less uh more grooving <laughs> yeah well yeah yeah, yeah. There, well there's there's <laughs> shit in there that's just not you know, there's just little road bumps in the counterpoint, you know what I mean? And I, I, and, and the road bumps are there because, um, cause I'm trying to play shit that I probably shouldn't be playing, you know? So I, I have to investigate why, why I make sometimes these opportunistic choices, you know, but you still want the music to be fun. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to be like, 
you know, making, making yourself miserable. It's still got to be fun, you know? Yeah. So, so the approach we're talking about um, where you're playing bass and chords and melodies all at the same time, like, let's talk about that for a second. So did you find when you were starting that whole path, um, did it take you a long time to maybe break out of the patterns uh, that you maybe had to like start with just to get, get some independence happening between the fingers? Yeah. I mean, you know, the patterns weren't the problem um, so much as because yeah, you'll, you'll hit those. Cause you know, it's, it's home, right. Especially when you're young, you, and you haven't played, you, you definitely want to stay with whatever home is, you know? Um, but, uh, but, you know, when I got into really trying to do this, you know, as a street musician and, and, you know, I got into listening to the more counterpoint oriented kind of guitar players things, you know, Joe Pass and Tuck Andrus and all the old blues, blues players and stuff like that. I mean, stuff that really the guitar is kind of, in my opinion, kind of made to do, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it takes you out of those patterns because you don't have the luxury of sitting in a one position. I mean, you can do that. You can. And there's a lot of shit you can play in that one position. But, um, but generally, you know, you, you have to learn how to, to go, uh, whatever the path of least resistance is rhythmically and in terms of the counterpoint, right? So you can't, a lot of times the worst thing you can do is play in patterns in your old boxes, you know? Right. Yeah. What I guess what I mean is like, was there a point where like, when did you start to feel where uh i guess where did you get to the point where you weren't really thinking about your hands so much because um because i feel like you know there's like things that people do with that with that technique i mean and and, you know and i dabble in that stuff as well yeah oh yeah you do it great i've heard i've heard you i've heard you it's killer thanks man i mean but it's not it's not what you do and it's definitely not like what you know i mean you have a really unique lane too sonically because um you still have, you know, like you have the bass amp, right? Handling the bass strings. And then you've got like the other amp for like the, for the higher strings, right? Is that still how you're? Yeah. yeah it's still, unfortunately how my life is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I've been doing it that way forever. You know, it's just weird thinking, Oh, how did I get here? How did this happen? You know? Yeah. But sonic but, sonically, it really makes sense though. I mean, because I remember the one time, this is, this is going back a few years, but that time we played in, uh, or you played before uh, me and a couple people in New Jersey. And like, I think if you stand in front of it sonically, it makes a lot of sense, but it's also disorienting because, you know, the, you know, it sounds, it really does sound like two different instruments. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of does. And I'm trying to get, uh, I don't know if you get, a, not get away from that because there's not a lot you can really do about that. You know what I mean? Um, and I always kind of did when I, at the, when I really was starting this all those years ago, I really was into the idea of it sounding as much like two different people as possible. Hmm. But at this point, I'm more interested in sounding like, you know, Blind Blake, a futuristic version of Blind Blake. You know, I want it to sound like <laughs> one one person, right. and I want it. But you know, sonically, the sound, like the bass sound, I like for this is kind of somewhere in between, like 
you know, a B3 and upright and Chuck Rainey kind of sound, you know? And then yeah. the guitar sound for me has just always been, you know, for years I used kind of a Leslie sound just because it, it, it made, it did something that I didn't, ha I didn't have to do anything. You just hit it and, and it would manipulate the strings into making, you know, like it's a spinning speaker, right? But I got kind of, in some ways, I, I don't like to use that very much anymore. Most of them I just plug straight into the guitar side. And um, usually yeah, I plug straight into the bass amp, straight into the guitar amp without any effects. And, you know, because the guitar sound I'm kind of going for is just a real plain, kind of hopefully warm kind of sound like, you know, Cornell Dupree or an old acoustic kind of blues player. You know, I mean, that's kind of what I'm going for. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll jump out and I'll have to play a few silly little unnecessary guitar licks because... You know, I don't know, man. There's always an 18-year-old waiting to come out and ruin the party, you know. But um, sometimes you, those you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, sometimes those things are necessary, man. You got to like, you know, it's like that's for the people in the back that, you know. It, yeah. <laughs> totally, man. They paid too, you yeah. know. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, sonically, it's just, it's kind of what works. And, and what I've been trying to do now is just really, really work more on my time and my feel and and really really try to get to that point where i'm really i can kind of flow through tunes and things um without feeling like i have a lot of bottlenecks you know what i mean yeah how did you um like what do you do to work on your time feel for for this kind of stuff like what what types of things do you find um, useful? Like, what's your uh, what's your methodology for that kind of thing? Well, I you know I play drums, you know, um, and uh, to get feels together, right, and to get the feel of um, rhythms working together, you know. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, since the quarantine, I haven't been able to actually play drum kit because I I don't have that possibility where I live, my neighbors will kill me, you know? Um, but I, but you know, I'm practicing on a pad and I'll do, per, I'll do practice percussion stuff just to keep that kind of thing rolling and to keep that time feel at its most elemental. You know what I'm saying? Cause I mean, you know, as a, as a, a bass player, especially, you know, you really want to, I mean, I want to be in with the drums that at all time, I never want to be, that moment where I'm thinking about what my next opportunity is to play some frilly guitar shit, you know, Absolutely. that even I like to play, I like to play that frilly shit, but it, it but, but it, it always sends me down a, a bad path, you know? Um, so, so really it's that. And then of course, uh, shedding, you know, and there's that kind of, kind of that whole, vibe right where you're you're dealing with the difference between time and feel right those they're two they're they're two kind of sides to, to, to the same coin right mm -hmm. um and i mean you know you i feel like you want to know as many feels as possible but you really can't be an expert in every feel you know um like certain feels is like you're just going to have to bring, you know, like if I go to Brazil and I play with those guys, I'm just going to play my feel with their music and they seem to like it. So it's okay. You know? Um, but you know, certain things like a shuffle feel or, or that Bay area kind of funk feel, which is pushed or that Memphis feel, which is kind of behind. 
um, or the New Orleans feel, which to me is kind of right on it, you know. Um, I just try to investigate those feels on, and even like a quote-unquote, like a New Eurekan feel or Cuban feel, you try to investigate those on the percussion instruments first. So you get an idea of what that is in its elemental thing, and then you bring it to the instrument and try to play um, kind of a simple counterpoint, a simple bass part with a kind of simple guitar part until you really start to feel that you get that feel as as good as it can. And of course, you're you're playing with a metronome um, all the time. I always play with one. Um, it's it's like my friend. You know, I feel I feel. I mean, of course, I'll play obviously without one. But practicing, I always practice with it because it's it's like my friend. It's like it's like if if the metronome's not there, I feel, I feel like I'm not playing with my friend. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of metronomes, and I like taking the approach where you make it uh, so it's you know each click is two and four, you know, so yeah. you got, you have to kind of deal with the amount of space that's there, um, and and you can feel yourself calibrate to it if you if you set it at a tempo. I mean, the other thing I found I don't know if you've had this experience where like some stuff tempo wise is really cool, and then two two or three or four BPM faster or slower, it's weird. You know, yeah, that. absolutely. It's fucked. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> you know, yeah. the story about that tune that, it, you know, tempos, everything, right? Cer certain tunes just die at certain tempos, you know, and there was that tune, that little darling, you know, that Count Basie, mm -hmm. I think, did, and then that down, 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 do, do. Do right well. Apparently, when they brought that tune in, it was and I guess Count Basie was just like, No, nah, no, nah, well, this tune will be great if we slow it down, and that's the whole song, right? Yeah, you know, like the temp um, the tempo has a, has a role in it as much as anything else, um, big time. And it's it's just weird how how uh, it's weird how a couple BPM in either direction can really make it, make it, uh, you know, alive or, or it sort of kills it, uh, in a, in not, in not a good way or, or not, a, you know, it, it's sort of, it's, it's the most effective at, at like whatever the quote unquote correct tempo is. Yeah, it's very true. And, you know, a lot of those old drummers, they're like, you know, especially like those jazz drummers, like, uh, they knew quote unquote, they knew quote unquote all the tunes and they knew quote all the tempos right so they knew the right tempos to all those songs which is pretty pretty dope pretty deep right yeah also like there's there's stuff i wonder about where like maybe the tempo wasn't recorded at the right speed quote unquote right speed and so you can tell that like the you know the whole thing is like sped up because uh there's that that first song on on the sly and the family stone record fresh i don't yeah. i think they sped that up a little bit it sounds like because like the bass i tried playing along with it a couple you know like because the, the bass playing on that record is, is amazing uh rusty allen yeah, yeah man yeah but we, i don't we were talking about him the other day dorn and i he was a he was a, when i lived in oakland he was apparently apparently he was a parking lot attendant oh wow yeah shit but, um, but were you saying it was maybe a little out of tune or something like a little a flat or something like that? Yeah. I think they might've either moved that they might've sped it up or slow it down just to move the tempo Yeah, to, to get it to the ideal place. 
Um, that, yeah, it's so funny. I, you know, a lot of times I think it's probably more haphazard than that, you know. Um, probably someone in mastering fucked and didn't have it calibrated right, the acetate machine or something. Like, often <laughs> right. that's, what, that's what that stuff is, right? You know, yeah. it's just like, wait a minute, man, this is in D flat extra, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm just, it's weird. Like I'm thinking about it from from modern recording standpoint, just like, well, maybe they're just messing with it, but it could also be like, well, there was like 20 people in the room, you know, and someone might've leaned on one of the machines and, you know, they're all high. So it was like, yeah, this sounds great, you know? Yeah. <laughs> could have yeah, been totally. Kind of Wait, which tune is the first tune on that record? Uh, in Time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe so. You know, I, I grew up with my mom who had all those old blues records. That was her thing. And of course we listened to the Robert Johnson stuff all the time and that stuff is sped up. Oh wow. And if you listen to the unsped up stuff, it's freaky. Huh? It's free. I'm so used to listening to this stuff sped up. It's like a semitone higher and it's just so different sounding, you know. How how much faster is the the way that most people have heard it like versus like the actual recording? I speed? think it's like almost a semitone. Wow. Which is weird, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like much, but that's a lot. You know. Huh. That's a lot in terms of like the tonality of someone's voice and all that shit. It's really weird, man. I mean, I have both of them and it's kind of jarring to listen to the, the one that's the quote unquote correct speed, you know? Right. That's, yeah, that's, that's insane to me. I mean, I think the other, you know, the other instance of this I think of too is like, there's the, uh, the Van Halen demos for like the first, couple records where they recorded a bunch of those songs and some stuff that didn't really turn into anything until like years later. And, um, I, the demo version of running with the devil is a little bit faster than how it was on Van Halen one, like the version that everyone knows and loves. And that, you know, that groove is so simple, but it's got a vibe to it at that tempo. And so it's like interesting to hear, how yeah, you know, and, and I'm I'm also thinking maybe because of the way media gets passed around, the tape it could have been a tape, you know, conversion issue where it was just a little bit sharp, you know, and people I don't know I have like some I have some bootlegs of like Pat Metheny from the '70s with Bob Moses and Jocko, and that's the that's the same deal. Like they're they're playing faster, but I think it's because the tape tape was a little bit the tape. Yeah. Being, Maybe, maybe so, man. I mean, I don't know. That shit is so weird. And I just remember being a kid and I'm sure you used to like having a, having a record, like a record player, you know, and no, no, the only way you could actually kind of like transcribe anything was on a record player. And, um, just being like, man, what the hell? I got to retune my guitar for this song. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes with bass in general, I mean, there's a lot of guitar players. I, I, 
are you one of those E-flat guys or no? Like, No, I mean, it's just because my instrument is so weird, man. It's another issue I have. Like, I've had a variety of different tunings through the years just because I'm trying to get it to a space that it's really copacetic in, you know? So I've had G be my low string, like on your third fret, right? Your low string, your third fret. Uh-huh. Now I, I went back, and it's actually some stuff I wanted to ask you about as a bass player. Yeah, sure. I went back to F, so my and I've been playing this six string instrument I call the big six, which you may actually be interested in checking out. It's pretty cool. It's um it's like I have it this one to an F. Like it's like your first fret, right? Mm-hmm. Low F, B flat, E flat. And then the guitar is B flat, E flat, A flat, like the same thing, like the first fret, the A string kind oh, wow. of up. And um and it seems cool. I mean the issue I always had was, you know, it's a 29-inch bass scale length going up to a 25-and-a-half-inch guitar scale length. And um, it was always this thing with, like, technique. Well, am I going to play more? What, how, what kind of technique am I going to play? And usually, you know, I had such heavy bass strings and so much tension. I was tuned up to G. I was just slamming the bass strings, like James, just super hard, you know. And, yeah. um, and I realized, and I'm killing myself. I realized, man, I... I I got to try something else, man. I want to go back to this F and see if I can change my technique a little bit. And I was talking with Adam Dorn about it and a few other people. And you know how Pino tunes down a whole step, you know? Right. Um, and I, and I want to ask you about that too. Cause I was like, man, this, it, it requires a whole different touch. You know what I mean? Um, which, you know, okay. Softer right hand touch. Okay. So I'm kind of learning how to do that now. And it's a whole different thing, man. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that stuff? Well, for me, the softer right-hand touch, that was more about trying to find, I guess I would call it a zero point where um, sort of like the smack dab in the middle. So I, I have... You know, I have I have a range where I could play harder if I needed to, but... Mm. I could also play softer and sort of finding the median point between those two, I guess for lack of a better term, velocity levels. Yeah. Uh, Okay. That's, that's pretty much been like, that's been the thing that's helped liberate a lot of my ideas. But the thing that's really hard about using that as a bass player, I mean, sonically the thing is there's, you've got physics on your side with that because your intonation is going to be better if you play with a more controlled touch. Mm, mm, mm. I, I learned a lot about this from, <clears throat> from checking out Gary Willis. Cause you know, I was really into his playing and, and like a lot of the fusion guys, um, right. they play with like a really controlled light touch. But what I found was developing that gave me more of a range for, for like playing bass lines where I wanted certain notes to jump out louder than others it mm. it just kind of overall improved um, the natural EQ that we all sort of have with our playing where, you know, you want to emphasize certain things, but it also kind of gives, uh, it's hard to explain this, but it basically, it gives you a ceiling to work within. But so here's the part I was getting at. The thing that's hard about that is if you're in a, if you're playing somewhere where somehow the bass get sucked out of the room somehow or like you're yeah. on stage and you can't hear yourself. That's when it gets weird because I don't know why this is. And I don't know why after all these years later, 
this comes up, but sometimes that idea that if you play harder automatically, the mix is going to improve itself and you're going to hear everything you want to hear. <laughs> it's total, dude, it's total reptile mind yeah. thing. And we're all guilty of it. I mean, it's totally, yeah, you get in that point where like, okay, this is going to be a long night and I'm going to, my hands are really going to hurt at the end of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's I it's it's also weird too because um there's so much that goes into that that type of playing on the instrument also because then you got to consider setup and uh you know string height and the kind of strings that yeah. uh, you want to use and and what works and it it's sort of the beginning of a rabbit hole but I think I think by and large it's a worth it's a worthwhile pursuit because ultimately I think the places you'll notice a difference besides just the physical attributes of playing a little bit lighter mm. when you record you can I've noticed that like you, you can get a bigger sound just by like kind of having like the element of 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 a controlled right hand attack that's really the thing I've noticed like you can you can really get a lot of the you can get you can get all the note you want, just, but I think the thing is like if you play too light, then you're gonna lose it. But um, yeah, you know, there's definitely a happy medium somewhere. I totally agree. And you know what Ken Parker was telling me because he's kind of a brilliant guy. I said, man, why I'm I'm losing my mind. I'm having such a hard time playing with the intonation I want to play with. You know, and he goes, well, you have to understand your instrument has a lot of range on it. Some of the strings vibrate in more of a straight line and others vibrate more in a football shape. The lower down you go, the more they kind of vibrate in this weird kind of ellipsis, you know, and, and the harder you hit them, the more of that ellipsis you're going to get, you know, and apparently when you have really long scale length, you lose a lot of that because there's so much space for that to do its thing, right? Like yeah. on a 42 inch, like upright bass, you're fine. You know, as long as you get your your finger in the right place on the on the fretboard or on the the, the fingerboard, you you can hammer away and you'll you'll kind of be okay for the most part. You know, whereas with this thing, which my instrument is essentially like a short scale bass in a lot of ways, um, I do have to worry about the touch. And I, and I have like I've been using either those nylon tape on strings or. I just started, don't tell D'Addario because I have the D'Addario endorsement and they're awesome. But I got a set of these old Tomastic flat wound bass strings that have a round core. And I guess the tension is a little lower than usual. And it's really, really easy to play, even though they're big, really thick strings. It, um, it feels good. And, and you're right, I can play lighter and let the amp do more of the work, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, man, it's just a whole, it's a, it's a fucking journey that never ends, man, thankfully, yeah. I guess, you know? Yeah. It's also, it's also dependent on the exact sound you're trying to get. Because uh, for me personally, there's a bunch of different, uh, we can call musical dialects that, that I, I have. Like I can, you know, like if I'm playing like a rock or a metal thing, you know, there's, or if I'm playing with a pick even like that's sure. a whole, that's a whole other thing too, where, um, there's different ways to play with a pick where, you know, you can have a more controlled, 
finessey approach, kind of like what Bobby Vega does, or like even mm. even like Chris Squire, like who's really aggressive, but he was really aggressive, but there was there was an element of of true finesse to what he did, um, or you know like just straight downstrokes the whole time and and really right. just making the string <clears throat> go a certain way. I mean, there's that's that that's like the weird counterpoint to the playing light helps your sound because I, I think also like digging in to a certain extent that's a sound too. I just think yeah yeah for sure. I just, I just think as a for a physical approach, it's really hard to sustain that because you know ultimately you know depending on what you're trying to play. I mean, if you're not moving around that much, it's probably not the hardest yeah. thing in the world. But I don't know. I mean, I, I've kind of painted myself into a corner with some of the stuff I do. So like, I've had to like make compromises and you know decide. Okay, I'm gonna play not like super light strings, but I'm not gonna play like the heaviest possible strings because I like to do weird shit with my left hand and it's just not going to work if, right. if, if I'm playing like really heavy, you know, so it depends. And, and I think that's, that's the other part of it. It's like, there's a, there's a tonal element to it. And so I think it's really just about being aware of your options, but, but definitely I think, um, you know, um, bass players of a certain ilk can benefit from, from playing with a lighter touch, you know, or, or maybe not light as much as just finding the con- the place where you can control it without yeah. exerting without exerting the most energy. Because I feel like exactly. Because I think that's the thing. It's like <clears throat> no matter what people are doing as as a bass player, uh, the attack is very important. Like, there's really no yeah. way around. There's really no way around that. You know, um, especially if you're playing funk or syncopated music. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And that, I mean, that's really important to me to have that drum get really being in with the drums, you know. And I think over like the last 10 years or so, I got so into this idea that I needed more tension on the neck. I needed to play harder with my right hand. I needed to do all these things to make it sound like a really gigantic version of like Mississippi John Hurt, you know. <laughs> but then I lost sight of of that and it became a weird internal kind of macho thing i'm like wait a minute this is diminishing returns man like i i I, this is not a cage fight you know like i i and it's already fucking hard enough as it is this damn instrument you know so let me find and it's interesting what things present themselves and i know this is really getting in the weeds for most people i'm sure but that's cool it's uh you know it's (laughs) it's it's interesting for me because i'm i'm always always interested in what people's setup is and what their technique is. Like I'm always surprised at people who I think play these massively heavy strings and they don't, you know, like they play tens on a guitar or like uh, Cornell. I don't know if you know Cornell, the bass player with um, uh, John uh, Cleary down in New Orleans, or he's, he's on Treme a lot too. He's a great bass player. He plays, I said, man, you got such a huge sound. What he goes? Oh, I just play those D'Addario light yeah. gauge, the ninety-five. I'm like, yeah. How is it? Po- you know, or <laughs> yeah. like, you know, Jim Campolongo, who's like one of my fa- in terms of his sound. He's really just one of my favorite guitar players in terms of what he does with a, a Telecaster, right, and, and into a Fender amp like a Princeton or a Vibrolux. And I'm like, man, Jim, what? He goes, oh no, I use nines. I'm like, what? How? How is that possible? You know, and and 
and then, you know, I played with Pat Martino a little bit back in the day. And, you know, he was famous for having those guitars with like 15s, right? On it, like 15 to 56 or something, right? Um, and I was daunting. I was like, man, I don't know if I, if I can play that guitar. And I played it and it was really one of the easiest guitars I've ever played because the action was so low, there's almost no action. It was almost like playing an organ. It was just like, you just touch your fingers on the area you want and there you are. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And um, it's interesting, you know, a lot of the kind of jazz uh, guitar players, they'll use real heavy strings, but they have no action whatsoever, um, which is its own, has its own pluses and minuses, right? Sure. Well, I think the other thing is too, the heavier the strings you have, like the lower you can have the action without buzzing. So there's absolutely, yeah. so there's, there's that part of it too. I, I think, um, I, I think a lot of that stuff just comes down to, um, <clears throat> personal preference, uh, yeah. as, as far as like what, what it's actually going to do for, for performance. I mean, I think sometimes people underestimate, how hard they play live and then you know they put on they have like a like you know kind of a, a very very efficient setup so you know and then you know they find that like it's it's creating a weird obstacle because it doesn't they're not accounting for resistance at all um, right right yep yep so it's it's weird man like i i definitely like lower action but i definitely have a few of my bases set up in a way where I, you know, like my P base, it doesn't have super low action. It's not super high, but you know, it's, it's also a little bit more challenging to play cause it's supposed to be a 62. So like the, even by like the, the, the nut it's, it's a wider, it's a wider fingerboard. So yeah, you know, like there's, there's like, it's not as uh, streamlined as like some of my other bases. Um, and I, I kind of like having like a range of setups, but by and large, you know, I know for me, it's like, if it's a gig where I, I'm really going to have to play all kinds of stuff where like the full range of stuff like chords and soloing and I need to have something yeah. that can, can kind of have, um, a relatively easy setup. And I don't know, that's sort of how I gauge it. But in the back of my mind, I mean, the Sonic thing is always there. Like I'm always, I'm always like thinking, you know, I want it, I don't want it to affect my sound, but like in a weird way, you know, I guess at this point it hasn't, if it's affected anything, I haven't really been aware of it. You know, like you know, I've never really gotten any uh, flack for my, my sonic choices or whatever. But um, I know with guitar, like I know Billy Gibbons uses like really light strings and uh, yeah. Which is just crazy to me, but you know it's a it's a it's a touch thing. But the other thing is when you're playing with a real distorted sound a lot of the time or overdriven, and you're using a lot of pedals, I really think you can get away with that sound. And actually, in some some cases, it's better to have light strings because it just gets so overwhelming. You know, um, have you, do you know Josh Smith? You must have played with Josh. Yeah, um, I, I know Josh. I did a tour of Europe with him uh like back in 2018 oh and then, okay and then um I did a, a, a few gigs with him in Hawaii before that and he he likes 13s I think oh yeah he uses really really heavy strings and yeah. and he has not low action his action's kind of like medium 
And it's, I love that. Like if I was a six string guitar player, that would be the setup I would use because you don't really have to think about anything. It just, you hit it and it does what it's supposed to do, you know? Yeah. But then you listen to a guy like Greg Koch, who sounds massive and he's, he's got one of the, and he's like using tens, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just a million different ways that I think you can go about it. And, and, uh, it just, I guess it just depends on results. You know what I mean? Like you say, it just depends on results. And another thing Ken Parker was telling me was, you know, unfortunately for me, I do like really high action, like ridiculously high, unfortunately. Um, the problem with that is you have to, every fret you go up, it gets louder in, because it's closer to the magnet, right? Wow. Of the pickup. So it's like, if you can have, the lower action with heavier strings, then you're avoiding that kind of thing. But then there's something that happens with the high action that I like with, with the percussion, you know? Um, yeah. But man, I don't know. I just, I have to, now is that time with this, with this quarantine thing where I, where, you know, I can spend a lot of time investigating this stuff and kind of re machining my, uh, approach because uh, there's no gigs, you know, I mean, I'm do obviously I'm doing some stuff online, but it's not like I have to, to play gigs, you know? Yeah. How's that fe been feeling? I mean, I know you were saying before, it's sort of a, a nice break in a way, just because you've been at it for like 30 years, but um, are you finding it kind of weird and, and disorienting just to sort of be, we're, I just feel like we're kind of, and, and, you know, I'm saying this with respect to the fact that, like, there's real shit going on and people yeah. doing, doing like, really scary things, um, heroic things. Um, absolutely. You absolutely. know, and we're just, you know, like, we get to do, you know, for now, we get to kind of do this and it's, and it's okay. Yeah. But it's, but, you know, within the context of that, like, I, it's, it's, it's something I, I kind of worry about, like, you know, the longer this goes on, like, are people all right? Kind yeah. of just, you know, because I feel like so much of us define ourselves by what we do, you know, and so, yeah. you know, or, or how many gigs we have or, you know, so yeah. I, I feel like, you know, there's, it, it's been weird to kind of, you know, embark on this so far, uh, you know, and, and see like what people are are doing, you know, and I'm, I'm, I think it's cool that people are making stuff though. Like I, I really think. Yeah. I think that's a good, healthy thing, but, you know, I, I feel like we're not even in the first lap of the marathon, maybe. And No. Yeah, I I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, you know, so I was just saying, like, have you, have you found it, you know, do you feel inspired in spite of all that, or are you just kind of taking it, are you more of a one-day-at-a-time kind of person? I mean, though, I, I agree with you. This is just the very beginning. I mean, and we're lucky we're musicians at this point of time, right? right? We're not healthcare workers. We're not working in the supermarket. We're not at the post office. You know, we don't have to do these real high stress. I mean, especially in the medical profession, these real high stress kind of jobs where, where you're really kind of open for, for the, you know, getting the disease, you know, um, I mean, you know, we can hold up and, and we're musicians. So we're, we, we know how to make a bag of beans last a really long time, you know, um, and, you know, but the, you know, so now it's like the first couple months. Cause I've been back for six or seven weeks. I was in Italy kind of when it was, the shit was happening there, I had gigs canceled and 
kind of had to find a way back here, whatnot. So, you know, it's kind of a shock to the system in the way, but this is, I think this is a boxing match and we just got punched in the face really hard and knocked to the mat in the very first round. And there's 12 more rounds to go, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I feel like now we're not thinking of things because, you know, we can be very introspective as musicians, but, you know, it's going to be six or seven months and we're still not going to be playing gigs. And then a year from now, yeah, someone like me who usually I'll play like 100 seat gigs, well, I can now play 50 seat gigs that are, we're in 100 seat places, maybe, you know. But the other thing to remember is all of these people that I've known for 30 years, whose clubs I've played and promoters I've worked with all over the country, all over the world, they're, how many of them are going to be there when this is all over, you know? Um, yeah. I, I really think that, you know, yeah, okay, so there's going to come a point where, great, uh, you know, we have a vaccine, we have antibody testing, whatever it is that allows us to play gigs again, but how many of the gigs are going to actually be there to play? That's another thing to think about. And then, even if you have the gigs to play, are people going to really come out to the gigs? You know, there's so many of of these questions, you know. And for me, I mean, dude, I'm I'm almost 53 years old. I, you know, I've been doing this a really long time. Um, there's lots of jobs I've done other than music and, and I can do other jobs to kind of make a living. I live in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is a, a kind of affordable place to live. Um, it's not the people I feel for are people like, you know, you're, you're in LA, it's expensive, you know, and, and I feel for people that are these young up and coming musicians in their twenties and maybe even their early thirties who really, really put in the work and really, really sacrificed everything. And they're just handed this plate of, of shit they have to deal with right in the midst of them trying to make their career and make that really important music that they want to make, you know? Um, and that's, that's really hard. You know, that's, you know, I think of that and, and I'm always, trying to do whatever I can to, you know, give the kind of younger generation. I feel like such a weirdo even saying the younger generation of musicians, but it's true. It's that point now, you know, and, and they're the ones I really, really worry for, you know, I mean, I love this and, and I don't want to stop playing gigs, but man, I, it's been a blessing just to even get to do this, you know? Yeah. And, and I've gotten to do it for 30 years. I mean, you know, it's even even the years that were really, really rough when it was hard to put food on the table was still great. I still got to play great music with great people, you know. Um, so for me, it's like, it's almost like a, it's okay. I can deal with this for another six months and figure out ways to teach and kind of make the rent money and stuff like that. But, you know, in terms of just musicians, not I'm not even talking about other people that are losing their businesses and everything. The the people I feel for really are the young ones who are up and coming, who already had enough of a of a a mountain to climb with everything being great, you know. It's it's definitely hard to process on a lot of levels. And I think that's the that's the weird thing about seeing some of the discourse that that we all see when this is talked about because I think people really want to have something to aim for 
because I think if you can see around an obstacle, it's easier to process what the obstacle is. But, you know, it's it's very, very, very hard to predict what what's going to happen. Like, you know, the thing, yeah. even the thing about Amoeba Music closing, like on, on Sunset, like they, they're not ever going to reopen that location. You know, right. like, like they, right. they have a new location pinned down on Hollywood Boulevard, but just them actually saying, yeah, we can't keep, you know, we, we got to just move to the next. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, the, the casualties in terms of places, people like to go venues. Uh, oh yeah. All of it. It's, it's weird. And, and I guess, yeah, I made a joke about this. I think on Facebook, Facebook's generally where I test out all my material because yeah. <laughs> I love it too, man. I'm always so, I'm, I'm like, Oh, that's definitely Jenkins. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, that's cool, man. Yeah. I mean, it, that, I feel like that's a safe place to do it. Twitter is more risky because you just never know what Russian bot or, Oh, it's awful. Yeah. yeah it's, it's awful. It, you just don't know which one of them is going to pounce on something. And I've learned yeah. not to engage, but Facebook, at least enough people know my sense of humor. So I can, I can kind of get away with certain things. But, but uh, I, I was saying something to the effect and it wasn't being like snarky. I, I really think we're not really going to be in a place where the word normal can be used um, until no. we can, until we can take shit for granted, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and I, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's the weird, the weird measuring stick with all this. But it's like, you know, it's like, man, I never thought about, I never had a game plan when I went to Trader Joe's. You know what I mean? Like, not right. once. Yeah, yeah. I, ne I never yeah. thought about it. I was like, yeah, cool, man. I'll get like, you know, like maybe I'll get some, get some pasta and like some some produce and like some hummus and some. But like, I never went in there with a list and thought about like this place, this place is going to blow up in four minutes. Let's, let's, you know, like that's the exactly. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what it feels like now, man. It feels like, you know, like it's, it's like special agent mode. Yeah. This, this place is, you know, highly dangerous. Yeah. You know, but the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the arc of history, it's very long and this has happened many, many times. The history of humanity, all of these, kind of pandemics and great upheavals and uh, these are the these are the you know end of the one chapter and the beginning of another chapter and things are you know we've kind of been gliding on this really as crazy it is we've been gliding on this post-world war ii uh you know 1950s mindset um even after the fall of of the warsaw pact and all of that stuff it's still that kind of economy that kind of mentality kind of the boomers that came up in that kind of set the tone and you know the morality and or lack thereof however you look at it um and um uh, you know now is is uh is the end of that there will be post there will be pre and post and it normal is uh, you know, I hear a lot of musicians talking about, yeah, well, when we get back, when we get back, I'm like, look, you gotta, I mean, it, it's sad and it's, it's fucked up and, you know, but maybe the next thing that's coming is, is better, but it's the next thing. It's not that thing before it's going to change. And yes, a lot of your tools will be not valid, but then a lot of tools you didn't even know you had will all of a sudden be 
incredibly valid and empowering. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things, these changes always favor certain people with, with certain tools and, and they, they don't favor other people with, without those tools, you know, and, you know, it's really hard to say what the right tools are, but I know in music, uh, we do, playing music is already in so many ways such an archaic thing if if you think about it in terms of of you know the the kind of genesis of coming out of a small village a little spot somewhere in the kalahari desert and and you know the four or five thousand years ago or however long it was and, and eventually morphing into what you and i do today um yeah it's it's always undergone these changes and you know, it undergone, the, you know, there were the griots, right? And they had a special place within the community and society. And then you're dealing with, you know, Roma people who have their space, the people that played music. Then all of a sudden you have people like playing for the church. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until very, or, or, you know, wandering troubadours, right? It wasn't until very recently that music was thought of as like a middle-class career, you know? That's a very new construct it's not something that's been around a long time it's it's uh you know uh so so we're, we're also when we think about music in terms of making a living as a musician we think about it in terms of look at the i mean i, I didn't go to music school you know i full disclosure but you know mm -hmm. as i tell people i fired a lot of motherfuckers that did you know <laughs> but um that's great but uh but, you know, if you think about the way that the education is dealt with, it's dealt with in a linear fashion, you know, as if music is, you know, you're a dentist, you're a doctor, you're, you could be yeah. a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. It's, not, it's a very different thing. And, and, and I think we're, we're delusional to think that it is one of those kinds of careers. I don't mean it's any less important because it certainly isn't. And actually, in many ways, it's more important because it carries more... Um, cultural DNA that goes back a much longer time, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, there, there's, whether we want to admit it or not, the chain uh, between what you and I do and what our ancient ancestors were doing in, in that little village in Africa, it's a long chain, man, you know? Um, and what I see is that we have, as musicians, we have weathered so many existential changes, which of course influences the music. And, and you know, the generation that that is generally probably in their 20s, maybe their 30s at the time of these existential changes, they're the storytellers. They're the ones who 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 decode the whatever the you know diaspora was or or the great upheaval was, and they create a narrative out of it, right? So everything's going to be changed. Everything's going to be different. I will be so surprised if it's not, you know. I, it seems almost hard to fathom uh, just the idea of some kind of a giant festival or concert um, with, with tons of people. Like, I don't even know, I don't even know how that whole thing would work at this point. And yeah. that's, and that's such a huge, I hate saying that cause that's such a huge um, part of this, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think that's the one part of, uh, being a musician that, that I don't know if people always think about this, but I think it's like, you know, for people, some, not all the, not every musician is comfortable 
just relating to people directly. So if they play for a room full of people, somehow that's a way to, to build some kind of a bridge, you know? And I think yeah. taking that away or, or maybe having that change, I think that's going to be jarring for people. Um, like, where do you, do you have any, like, I mean, it's probably futile to, to, to ask this, but like, do you have any kind of like prediction about where you think it's going to go? Like, do you think we're going to, you know, are our concerts going to be like driving things where people just sit in their cars and there's like, uh, you know, people performing boxes that are, you know, <laughs> or, or is it, do you think we're going to kind of enter this realm where there's like spaces where people will live stream and there's like really good bandwidth. And uh, cause I, I feel like that's probably something where we might see more of. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. You know, it's very true. I mean, it's really hard to say, but the thing that worries me is, well, if what happens if you have this economy where who, you know, only 60% of the population is working and of that 60%, only 20% wants to see music, you know? So immediately you're changing the socioeconomic kind of culture of what's going on um, to begin with. And then, the people with a narrative that serve that crowd the best will be the ones who are more successful. Right. Um, and, and the people who are able to most take advantage of whatever the medium at the time is, will be the most successful. I mean, Phil Spector certainly took advantage of the mono 45 RPM record and he ruled the airwaves for about four or five years. FM radio came in and that was about it for him, you know, um, you know, if you think about certain bands coming around at the right time, I mean, you know, Buddy Bolden, no one's heard Buddy Bolden, you know, because there was no recording gear when he was at his height in New Orleans, you know. Um, but there was when Louis Armstrong came around, you know what I mean? So it's, it's all, it's, dude, there are so many factors and externalities. It's, it's makes my head spin just trying to think of what it would be you know but i think whatever yeah but i think whatever it will be will be some type of an interim thing and the interim could last for years Hmm. you know yeah it's it's you know uh without using any of the tropes i mean we're we're witnessing some crazy shit um, yeah. Yeah. You should, you should be glad to live in interesting times. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like that gets used a lot. That's a nice, yeah. it's a, it's a giant blanket, but that blanket's got holes in it because, cause you know, at what point does interesting become super fucked up? That's what I want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to, to, to who, who gets the, who gets the bull's horns, you know? Um, you know, it's, it's, again, I mean, I could see us as a society coming out of this and the entire uh, socio-political landscape has changed, which I'm sorry, I mean, I don't say a lot of this on my social media, but, you know, I I think I'm ready. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, man. I've spent so much money on healthcare in my life for nothing. I think I'm ready for some some socialized medicine and i think i'm i think that our country's ready for some type of an education system that's not based on this insane usury of the student loan and you know some safety nets we just 
I think as a society, we, we, we need that stuff. And I think that that could obviously come out of, out of this because it, what an obvious thing. It's just like, oh, okay, yeah. You know, and the other thing to think about in turn, I mean, I'm getting, I'm totally going on a rabbit hole here, but, you know, there's this whole premise about the, the, the United States being, uh, you know, on the, the, the apex predator for so long because we have this gift of geography where we don't get invaded because we have these two massive oceans and then we have super nice neighbors generally north and south of us. Right. So this is maybe this is all of these other countries in the world have had to deal with these, you know, horrible existential kind of, uh, you know, things that, that happened, um, agents, right. Existential agents, whether it be, uh, like an invasion or, or the weather, whatever it is, we, we really haven't. And this, maybe this is, this is it, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's pretty daunting, man. Yeah. Yeah. Super daunting. It's, it's been, it's been a real interesting few weeks in that, you know, just the longer, the longer it goes on, the, the vibe has changed a bit, you know, in a lot of the mm. initial interviews I did for this podcast i i got a bunch done in a week and then i was starting to realize you know as time goes on the stuff that people talk about not that it would be um obsolete but just the narrative of this thing is going to constantly shift you know and um you know like nobody three weeks ago or even four weeks ago was thinking about casualties in terms of how does it compare to the Vietnam war, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've heard from a lot of the people of that generation, um, like when I talk to my mom about it, she always, you know, when we talk about like the current presidential administration and, uh, like what's happening, it's, it was always, well, you know, we, we survived Nixon and blah, blah. And now I feel like, uh, that, that's kind of a null point now. I mean, maybe Nixon maybe, was a walk in the park compared yeah. to this. Nixon was still as crazy as it sounds. If you looked at his, at his, you know, he was not into the war on drugs. You look at his health care plan. You look at his, you know, fiscal plan. It was to the left of a lot of what Obama was doing, you know, a different era, of course, you know, we, we were flush and had a lower population and we were flush in, in resources at that time. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, and dude, remember Watergate was a burglary. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's weird too, man, because uh, and I'm not trying to go down like a, a tinfoil hat rabbit hole, but like, <laughs> um, I mean, the low key confirmation of UFOs. Come on, man. Like, and, and that wasn't yeah. even the, that wasn't even the biggest news story of that. It's a redirect. Yeah. That's yeah. a redirect. That's like, you know, it's a very typical thing, but, but, you know, I mean, I feel like in many ways there's a, a kind of uh, an analog to what we are doing as musicians. If we're lucky enough to have, I mean, I got enough saved up to be good for a few months, you know, and, and you, you start to feel like, you know, the monks in, in, you know, the, those European monasteries when it was Christendom, you know, and 
the city of Milan would go to war against the city of Turin, right? But you were all good if you were in the monastery. You just had your books, you had your food, you you had a little kind of a, you know ecosystem that functioned regardless, you know. Yeah. And and that's the interesting thing about this is you know we have our we have our books, we have our computers, we have ways of connecting with one another, and you know we can put our fingers on the pulse. So that I think that that's another adds another kind of level of of the surrealism to this quote-unquote crisis because you would expect a crisis to be a lot more visceral, you know? Yes. Yeah, nobody's making stuff out of like, you know, no one's had to create things to to do, quote-unquote, as far as like entertaining themselves. Um, we, we, like, right. we, have, we have like, uh, in, like a, like a, infinite amount of things um to to check out while this is going on i was going to ask this is usually how i like this is usually how i like to wrap it up but like what um are there any books or films or shows you've been checking out since you've been you know hunkering down yeah um this is so messed up but i've been uh listening i'm a fan of um dan carlin you know hardcore history um Uh, i've heard of it yeah it's really great. He's, he's so passionate about, it's a great podcast and he's got just so many of them. They're great, but he has a new book. I don't know how new it is. I think it's, it's, I think it's called the end is always near. And it's basically about, uh, you know, destruction of, of civilizations. Um, and uh, I really highly recommend it. It gives you some, definitely gives you some, uh, a little bit of a, uh, perspective you know um that's cool yeah and and music man i i just am trying to uh i'm always listening to old music steve i just don't know like you know um i like this group butcher brown have you heard them they're from um, oh yeah yeah they play together really really well like i really like how they play together I've been really liking this guitar player, Tim Lurch. Have you checked him out? No, I haven't checked him out. He's kind of like the heir apparent, in my opinion, to Ted Green. And um, he sounds awesome. Um, I really like this guitar player, Eric Walls. You know, he's coming out of the... I mean, he could play anything, you know. um, But he's coming out of the more gospel quartet kind of guitar playing um, tradition. Uh, Incredible. He lives in LA, actually. He's from Durham. You guys should definitely play together sometime. I think you would really hit it off musically. Oh, cool. um, awesome. And uh, I'm trying to think of all these. You know what else, man? There's this guy on YouTube. His name is John Lawler. He spells it L-A-W-L-O-R. And he plays tenor guitar tuned in fifths. This dude is gotta be one of my favorite things going now. Just the beauty of his time and his feel. And he just plays all the old tunes and just plays the shit out of them on solo tenor guitar. And, um, you know, he just has some YouTube videos and I found through people at the fretboard journal and a few other people, I found his phone number and I ended up calling him, you know, and just saying, Hey dude, I'm, I'm a fan, blah, 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 blah. Super cool dude, man. And, you know, he played in, casinos in atlantic city and that work dried up and now he just has a job job um lives in like i think he lives in cherry hill or something like that um but incredible john lawler if you guys get a chance to 
check him out. It, it's such uh, it's such beautiful playing, you know. Um, huh. Is he an uh, older guy or is he just? Yeah, a- he's 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 got to be in his mid sixties. Um, okay. I he's definitely older than me. Uh, and um, and also, man, I mean, I I was probably the the most the biggest hater of social media, of course, when it came out doing my old guy thing, but I really like it now. Like I like my Instagram thing. Cause I just have all these, this music selected that I like with these players. And I just get excited to go and see what they're doing. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of plugged into that as, as well, you know? Yeah. Instagram's pretty fun, man. I, I dig it for now. You know, I don't for now. know. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't really turned into anything terrible yet, at least, at least in our, in our corner of it, you know, cause we're just dealing with like playing and, and, you know, I like the video content that people make, I guess for other, you know, for other industries, it's absolutely a giant cog in the machine. Um, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, I mean, I know for music, it's definitely huge, but there's other, other uh, industries where it's like people, you know, live and die by it. So it's definitely, I've been thinking a lot about content creation as of late and mm-hmm. try, trying to organize some thoughts as to like how that would work and what it would be. Um, Cause you know, it's like, man, I, I love playing bass, but bass isn't really the only thing that I do. So it's like, I don't know, man, you know, I'm trying to, it, it's hard to find a voice in, in all that stuff sometimes, yeah. like, depending on like what it is you're trying to, put across but what I like about it is you have so much power as far as like what people can see so if you're like well I want people to know that I can also do you know x y and z you can you can you don't have a barrier as to like you don't have there's nothing stopping from anyone from just putting out uh what they want to put out or what they think people should hear maybe that's good and bad but you know what I'm saying like yeah you 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 know you're totally right funny I Adam Dorn and I do this kind of, we used to have this podcast called Compared to What Podcast. And every Saturday on Instagram Live, we get on and we talk about a, you know, a person or a topic. And this last Saturday, we talked about kind of the electric bass. Oh, cool. We talked about kind of the invention of it and, you know, all the great players on it. And he he made a really good point because, you know, he kind of was a protege of Marcus Miller's. And he he had this, this thing which was really interesting because... You know, the electric bass was pretty new, man. I mean, like 1951, right? Leo Fender comes up with that Telecaster bass. really didn't come into prominence till the late 50s that people were really using it, right? And then really didn't shift over probably to like 62 when everything became electric bass, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but, you know, and then you go forward only 20 years from there where you're in the 80s and a guy like Marcus Miller and um, a few other a few of those other uh, bass players from that era were making a living as bass players. That's what they did. They were yeah. bass players. And if you had a certain sound and a certain style, uh, they wanted you for what their thing was. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that, I don't, that doesn't exist anymore. Really. No, right. It, I mean, no, it doesn't you gotta exist. do a million different things, you know? Yeah. That's a real interesting thing that has not really honestly been talked about enough. And um, because one of the things, one of the issues I had in my time in New York is I constantly felt like it wasn't, um, 
it wasn't like imposter syndrome. It was just kind of like a weird realization that the business is not what people are saying it was anymore. And right. uh, like this whole idea that um, if you play well, you're just going to get called and your phone's going to ring off the hook. Provided- <laughs> provided that people know who you are and that it just didn't happen. And, and yeah. even, even though I was playing with like really great people from the time I moved there, I, I always felt like an, like a complete failure in New York. Cause it's like, right. like I'm, I'm not doing something right. Like, you know, and it wasn't it's like easy an, to, it's easy yeah, to, yeah. Like it wasn't an entitlement thing. It was just, I think there was a real lack of transparency as far as like what people are actually doing. So, yeah, you know, yeah. like I, you know, at one point I had a couple day gigs, even when, you know, I, I had stuff in magazines and, you know, people like knew my records and stuff like I, oh, like, yeah, sure, just, man. It was just one of those weird things that like, it wasn't weird for me, but just, you know, it, I'm, I was sort of wondering like, how are people doing this? But, but when yeah, I ran, yeah, I'm ready to get a job any day. Any day. I, you know what I <laughs> yeah, mean? It's just like, yeah. whatever. And, and what it is, I'm sorry, I'll let you get back to your, your uh, point you were just about to make, but yeah. it's training people for a war that has already been fought and decided. And there's no, they're training people and they're telling them this narrative of a reality that no longer exists. There are no more 1970s opportunities Yep. yet people are expecting there to be. So yep. you go there and you play your ass off and there's so many incredible musicians in New York uh, and in LA, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so are you, you're like a bass player. Well, okay, you're a bass player, but you also play some guitar, you play some drums, you really know your way around Pro Tools, uh, you can arrange a whole session, you can mix. Now you're working on mastering. And, you know, with your spare time, you're, you know, editing something, uh, a, f- a film for somebody. You know what I mean? This is this is what I'm seeing most people are doing now, you know? Yeah. Well, okay. So this is probably risky to say, but I'll say it because I don't care. I have no affiliation. <laughs> say it. There is, there is something I saw recently from a famous music school, which I may or may not have attended. And... <laughs> And it was, and it was kind of like a round table of, of awesome players. Like everybody at the thing was great and had a really, um, by all measures of the word, successful career. And the thing was kind of like about how do you find a gig? And I'm like, there are no gigs. Like, it's yeah. a, I mean, it, they're, they're gigs in, in the sense that, you know, maybe like people might call you for some stuff and there's like wedding gigs and stuff, but I really think, and, and like, I'm not saying this to be self-congratulatory. The smartest thing I did was I made my own records because that's how I got to play with, you know, that's how I got into Fusinski's band. You know, I was in this this stuff for like five years and through that I met Vernon and Cindy Blackman and like, had I not done my own thing, I would have been, you know, I don't think it would have happened. You know, yeah. and and I think what I'm what I'm seeing and what I, what I like about all the musicians who I really think are doing cool things, and there's so many, but you know, like if you look at uh, like Noah, for example, um, sure, or even Love Butcher Brown, guys. yeah, even Butcher Brown, um, like those guys, those those musicians all kind of built it. They built their own thing, man, and and yep. that's it. Wasn't 
predicated on, um, it, it wasn't predicated on, you know, well, let's, let's get discovered or let's wait for, you know, an invitation. It's like, we're just going to do it. And yeah, now there's a way to, to, um, to, uh, you know, get it to people around like the older antiquated means. Um, and I, I know butcher Brown's doing pretty well. Like I hung with, uh, Andrew, like a couple yeah, yeah. months ago. Great He's a great bass player, man. Yeah. Great guy. Great bass player. And so I know, I know they're, they're, they were kind of on the up and up. I didn't know what the trajectory was, but, but things were kind of looking good for them. So, yeah, you yeah. know, I just think that's, that's the paradigm, but it's a, it's a very, I think a lot of people have sort of figured this out, but the whole notion that like, you know, I could have a career or anyone could have a career like a Lee Sklar or Will Lee in 2020. It's that's not going to happen. It's just not that beyond does not exist. And those guys are incredible guys and great musicians and they already have those gigs. Right. There is no more, there's no room, you know, and I realized that early on, I was just like, wait a minute, I, I'm going to go and be Joe Pass? No. You know what? <laughs> I go to New right. York and think I'm going to be this quote unquote like jazz guy and I'm hanging with Peter Bernstein and Russell Malone and Kurt Rosenwinkel and Henry Johnson and I'm like, nope, I'm not. Sorry, <laughs> ain't gonna fucking happen, you know, because these guys are, are fucking heavyweights and there's not enough gigs for them, you yeah. know, so, so next. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's a, but it's a really strange paradigm because it's not really taught, you know, or it's, yeah. or it's not, there's a couple people that, that definitely um, speak like that. Like I know Fuse, uh, I know Fuse is always telling people to do their own thing. Like he's yeah. always saying like, write your own music, experiment, put stuff together. Um, but in terms of, yeah, there's a weird ivory tower syndrome with some of these guys who, who really benefited from the old system. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. And the other thing, again, like I didn't go to music school, but I know that the kind of paradigm is basically one of, of, you know, they give lots of our good friends teaching gigs, which I appreciate. Yes. Um, but in terms of the economic model, it's, it's, it's not sustainable because you're producing a, a bumper crops of these incredibly, uh, you know, these musicians are incredible technically, you know, um, and some of them are even incredible in other ways, you know, but you're, it's all supply and no demand. You're, you're basically training them. You're taking like a quarter of a million dollars from their parents and you're training them to, to be cobblers. You know, it's, it's, yeah. there's no, and there's a certain problem I have with the responsibility um, that I feel like these music schools aren't, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of taking a pass on that, you know? Yeah. Um, but maybe that's not their job. Maybe it's just their job to train them to play well. Maybe it's not their job to train them to get a job. Cause I mean, philosophy PhD is, you know, try to get a job with that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, man. I mean, I think that's a, that's an easy defense for them too. Like, yeah, you're right. You're I, right. I mean, if, if you're going to, if you're going to spend the equivalent of like what four Audis cost to learn how to tie balloon animals, I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> You know what, man? I always told my kids, like, look, if you guys ever want to play music, 
you are not going to school for it. I'm going to give each of you $10,000 in cash <laughs> and my Rolodex. And it's like, you, like my son is like, oh, so you, let's say, imagine he wanted to play bass or my daughter wanted to play drums. I'm like, okay, look, I'll give you both 10 grand. You go talk to Steve Jenkins, go talk to Adam Dorn, talk to Marcus Miller, talk to Christian McBride. And once you've spent that $10,000 and you're not a bass player, you ain't going to be a bass player. You know, I tell my daughter, you want to play drums? Look, here's 10 grand. You were good friends with, with the lakes, you know, because our kids are the same age. They grew up right. together. I'm like, go to Gene's house, give him some, give him some of this money, <laughs> then go to Mark Giuliano, give him some of this money. Right. Then you can go to Bobby Previtt, give him some of the money, <laughs> and go to Bernard Purdy, give him some of the money. And if you're not a drummer by the time you spend $10,000, you ain't going to be a drummer. Yeah. Man. You know what I mean? It's just you ain't. It ain't yeah. going to happen. You know? I forgot you live near Gene. I haven't talked to Gene in so long, man. He's, I just watched something he did from January. Like there was like a one-off or maybe it was a couple nights, but Michelle did a gig at Blues Alley in DC and it was, oh, Gene, wow. and it was like Gene and Federico on keys. Um, yeah. Who I always thought was like, you know, that was sort of the dream. Like when, when it was the three of them, no disrespect to who's in her band now. Cause like she, she's cool in that she changes her music. Yeah. Um, but like the nineties stuff with like Gene on drums and Federico on keys. And then the various people that were in that band alongside them, like, yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, Gene, Gene's definitely like one of the all time greatest drummers, man. Yeah. He, you know, he, um, years ago we met in the Bay area because we, my group, my trio at the time with Jay Lane and Dave Ellis, we opened for Steve Coleman in like 1993, right when that band was really hitting and it was Gene and Reggie oh, and yeah. Andy, Andy Milne yep. and David Gilmore. And I got to tell you, man, that music never, I don't want to diss any, anyone, but that was grooving like fuck all those crazy odd time signatures and all that stuff that I could never play. And yeah, Gene and, and Reggie, man, they just had a vibe on that music. And no matter what, you know, it, it always grooved, you know. And and I think also Gene had a lot of influence from his dad, Oliver, because Oliver was such a free thinker and improviser that, you know, Gene always brought that into whatever kind of that that mentality into whatever he was doing. If it was Sanborn or if it or if it was you know, Henry Threadgill or, or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, he's, he's awesome, man. I, yeah, I used to go out there cause I, I, I played on a couple, I played on one of his records, I think. Oh, get um, out of here. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, he had like a band for a while. Like we play, I mean, he still plays that music, but we were, there was a point where we did like, uh, we played at like 55 and we did some stuff at Matt Garrison's place, uh, shapeshifter. Right. And, right. Yeah. And, um, damn, what's that other place called, man? It's, it's upstairs. Uh, I can't remember, but like, so I would go out there to rehearse and I'd take like the, uh, the DeCamps bus. Is that? Is oh that yeah. DeCamp. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I spent enough time on those buses for sure. Yeah, man. Like, but it was actually really convenient, but I got to know, was it Montclair? I got to know Montclair. Yeah. Sort of well. Yeah. Sort of well. I, I spent a lot of enough time there, man. I, I just like now I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm chilling, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, right on, man. It's different it's pace, man. I'm ready to get back to my, 
this is as close as I could get to being in the Bay Area again. You know, it's it's like being in the East Bay in the 70s with the same prices and everything, you know. Is there a scene there? Are there any, like, really killing musicians? You know, between here and um, Raleigh-Durham um, and Asheville, Asheville's kind of far, um, but there's some good players. You know, my friend Jeff Clapp, the great drummer, uh, lives in this area. And um, then there's some good people in, in um, Durham and, and Raleigh and Chapel Hill and everything. But, you know, um, I mean, there's great musicians everywhere. You know what I mean? As yeah. far as a scene, it's like, I mean, it's hard to have a scene anywhere right now, you know? So. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, prior to this, this thing. Yeah. Like, I was trying to start something here in terms of we had a space that we were booking music in and trying to get involved with the younger generation and trying to hang out with these young up and coming musicians. And, you know, that's, it's just, it's, it, there's just not money here. You know what I mean? Um, which is a, is a good thing in a lot of ways because the kids, maybe they don't have as much uh, skill. Um, their narrative is so deep, you know, there's a lot of struggle, you know, um, I brought Bobby Previtt down here and he did his voodoo orchestra which is basically you, you kind of get a bunch of local musicians together and he teaches them how to kind of play bitches brew, you know? Oh, that's um, cool. And we had like 10 people on the stage ranging from 70 years old to this 18 year old girl playing baritone saxophone and everything in between. It was really beautiful, man. And it, it, it being with Previt for like five days really changed their lives, you know? So I was trying to do stuff like that, you know? Um, because you know how it is, man, when you're young and you're, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know how great somebody is until you're on stage with them. And you're either like, wow, I didn't know I was good enough to play with them. Or, damn, I really am not good enough to play with them. <laughs> yeah. That's the, I think that's the best way to learn, though. You know, I mean, that's the. I think that's, so, man. You just have to, like, see, if, see what the baptism by fire is going to do. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's really the, the real test or, you know, the real, uh, measure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, even just, even just in terms of playing in general, I mean, that's, that's the thing, like the, it's easy to really master something in a vacuum, but then you got to try it. Like, how, how, can I still do it after three days of no sleep? Can I still do it when this amp is half busted, you know? Boom. Yeah. It's yeah. like, and that's the thing, man. It's like, look. I drive to the gig, me, eight hours. I get out, me, I'm 52. I take all my shit out of the car, put it on the stage, set it up, play the gig, and take all that shit down at the end of the night and then drive some more. You know, it's like you got to be able to do that every night and be able to play every night. You know what I right. mean? So you were kind of, um, I mean, you that was sort of your, your vibe. Like you had a car and then would, would it just be you and whoever was on drums? Was that the... Yeah, when I was doing a duo thing for a long yeah. time, Amendola and I did it, Previtt and I did it. I did some with um, Eric Kalb, with Terrence Higgins, with, mm -hmm. oh man, a number of different people. Um, and uh, Derek Phillips, my buddy Derek. And, um, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, now I've been doing this thing with Lucy Woodward. So it's me, her singing and a drummer. And that's a good little combo, you know what I mean? Right. Um, you had you had Pearlson with you once, right? Did Jordan play yeah, with you guys? Yeah, yeah, he's great, man. That guy's yeah. a great fucking drummer. That guy. Yeah, that guy's great. And Kalb's great too, man. I know him. 
he's, yeah, he's great. yeah. Cal um, is like the perfect kind of like balance between like Joe Dukes and Clyde Stubblefield, you know, but kind of with the heart of a John Bonham, you know what I mean? Yeah. But he, but boy, man, he really knows that Boogaloo stuff and that Adri stuff. He's 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 really a special carved a little special uh, niche out for himself, you know. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome. Well, man, I really appreciate you talking to me today, man. Um, hey, I appreciate you wanting to to do this, man. Glad we finally got to make it happen. Yeah, man. Killer, baby. That sounds great. And, you know, and I look forward to your continuing escapades on Facebook as well. So <laughs> please don't stop them. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a great uh, entertainment for me. All right, man. We'll do. <laughs> cool, Jenkins. Take care, man. And thanks, dude. All right, Charlie. Talk to you later, man. See you. Peace. For more about Charlie Hunter, go to charliehunter.com. He's on social media. You should check out his Instagram. He's always playing some awesome stuff on there. That's going to do it for this episode. New episode on Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. And be well, folks. Thank you.